Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but I, that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, in my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Our Father, we are in a marvelous section in this book, this revelation from Jesus to his church. And we pray that tonight you will speak loud and clear to us. These encouraging words are so needful and so helpful at all times, and perhaps especially in such times as this. So speak to us, we ask, and enable us to listen and to be doers of that word, not just hearers. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we are in the book of Revelation on Sundays at half past four and half past six. And at the moment, we are in the section from chapters eight through eleven. That section is called the Seven Trumpets. And tonight we come to chapter 10 and next Sunday, God willing, chapter 11. And chapter 10 and chapter 11 come between the sounding of the sixth trumpet and the final or the last trumpet. And uh, as we worked through the first six trumpets last Sunday night, they describe what is going on in the world and the period of time they cover is from the resurrection to the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus is the seventh trumpet. And it's a pretty bleak picture. It's about God's judgments in the world. It's about a world under judgment. The judgments of God in the world are there to cause people to uh, look for God. Think of uh, Romans uh, uh, 1. The creation itself is enough to make you look for God. And the fallenness of that creation and the fallenness of the world in which we live 
God's judgments in the world, this world under curse and judgment, is that humanity will reach out for their salvation in Jesus. Now, it is a bleak picture, and it concludes with some bleak words at the end of chapter 9. If you've got a Bible or you're using a Bible on your phone, just to look at that, chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, just before the passage that uh, Sophie read. This is a very bleak conclusion. The rest of mankind, chapter 9, verse 20, who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands and gave up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now that's a pretty bleak and a pretty terrible conclusion. But is it not so often true? For what will be the result of the global pandemic we are in? Will there be a great turning to Jesus? Maybe. Maybe in some parts of the world there will. We pray so. But maybe not. Maybe when churches are fully open up again, there will be a very little response. Because there comes a point when people's hearts are hardened, and when the rejection of God in a part of the world is so entrenched that the sounding of God's warning judgments are no longer heard. The last house we lived in as a family before the current one was on the ambulance run. And when we first moved in, it was almost as if you could hear nothing else. But after six months or after a year or after two or three years, you no longer noticed the sirens, for they were so familiar. And there comes a point in the world or parts of the world or in a country where the judgment soundings or warnings of God just are no longer heard. That's bleak, but it's true, it's real, but it is undeniably bleak. And so we get these uh, visions in chapters 10 and chapters 11. Because in a world under judgment where the destructive forces of evil are powerful, and that is the world in which we are living at the moment. I mean, if you look out on the world tonight, there is a great gospel expansion in the east, and yet significant threats looming. But in the west, it is a time of gospel retraction, with little signs of arresting the decline. In the UK, a thoroughly secular context, in Scotland, an even more secular context than the rest of the UK. In Edinburgh, in Morningside, people are not turning to God. And in our own spheres of influence, people are not turning to God. Think of the landscape of Scotland. For the first time in many, many years, centuries, churches have been unable to physically meet. We thank God for Zoom and technology like YouTube. But many, many, many churches across the country 
just do not have the means or the resources or the abilities to do that kind of stuff. And so all over the country, churches have been absolutely shut for these months. And that's hugely challenging. Think of the whole borders region of Scotland, hardly any gospel churches. Think of the southwest of the country. Think of uh, north of Inverness, up to the very top of Scotland. The islands, yes, are strong, but very, very few gospel churches, very few living witnesses to Jesus. It's a tough time in this part of the world for the gospel. And so, John sees, at a tough time for him, remember he was in exile on the island of Patmos at the end of the first century, and if you lived at the end of the first century as a Christian, humanly speaking, there was every chance the church would be snuffed out. And it's one thing to know the promises of Jesus that he will build his church and nothing, not even hell, will prevail against it. It is another thing, though, to to, to, to be living through one of these times. John sees this vision as he is an exile in Patmos. And we see this vision. And we need to see this vision in the western part of the globe today and in Scotland what John sees and we see is chapter 10 verses 1 to 7, a mighty angel and a little scroll. I mean, what we need when things are tough is not a little angel, but a mighty angel. And this is a mighty angel. Verse 1, I saw another mighty angel. We met one in chapter 2. Another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. That description of this mighty angel is awfully like the description of Jesus at the start of Revelation in chapter 1. Moreover, it is reminiscent of the description of the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4, the rainbow, the covenant sign. This angel is not Jesus but it is like him. And the point is, this is a big and important angel. It might be Gabriel or Michael, one of these big angels spoken of, for example, in a book like Daniel. How big is this angel? Verse 2, he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on on the land. One of the Bible commentators has a great phrase, this angel has sovereign feet. He stands astride the earth like Jesus, and he roars like a lion. This is indeed a mighty angel. And an angel is a supernatural divine being, an agent of God's will. Angels come to people. Angels come to churches. Angels come to God's people when they are beleaguered. 
and they touch them. They scare them because they are so big, but they are good and gracious. And almost by contrast, this mighty angel has a little tiny scroll in his hand. Try and shut your eyes and picture this mighty angel. You couldn't draw it. You couldn't draw this angel. But think of one foot on one side of the world, one foot on some ocean on the other part of the world, and the rainbow and the clouds and the bronze feet and all that stuff. And in his hand, a little scroll, a tiny scroll is the language. And when the angel speaks, verse 4, seven thunders sounded. Now when John hears seals being spoken about or trumpets being sounded, he knows that he's to write it all down. And so when he hears the seven thunders sounded, he immediately reaches out for his laptop or his pen or whatever, and he gets ready to write down the substance of the vision that's going to be given to him. But John is told, verse 4, be not to write it down. Then what happens? Verse 5, read with me. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and what is in it, he swore by the name of Jesus that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. The angel is saying, there is to be no more delay. It's time for the last trumpet to be sounded. There will be no more sirens warning us of God's judgment. It's time for Jesus to return. Now, what's going on here? Well, I think simply this. This vision is saying to us that time is running out. Time is running out for people to repent and believe. There is coming a day when the last trumpet will sound and God will bring his people home. One of my favorite songs in musical theater is from Les Miserables, Bring Me Home. Bring him home. Sung by Alfie Bow. He's the best. And that song is so evocative and so powerful and so moving. It's like the cry of the martyrs. It's like the cry of God's people. Bring us home. And one day God will say yes. God holds back from ending it all because he wants to bring more people into his kingdom. But one day he will not hold back any longer and he will bring his people home. Think of God as he looks at China. Great expansion. 
But another period is beginning of intense persecution. God looks. God may see that there are many more people to come into his kingdom in the east. But God is not unmoved looking at the plight of his people and their suffering. And there will come a day when this mighty angel holds up his hand and says, enough is enough. No more grace. No more chances. You see, all through the book of Revelation, there is a note of urgency that is sounded. Every time the gospel is explained, time, as it were, stands still in someone's life. There is an urgency to respond to the gospel, and there is an urgency for God's people to speak the gospel, to witness to the gospel in the world. And that is the point in verses 8 to 11, our second, and this is as far as we'll go tonight. As John is told to take the scroll, this little tiny scroll, to eat it and to speak it. Take, eat, speak. John has a job to do. He's not to concern himself with writing down the message of the seven thunders. We never know what that is. He is at this point to concern himself with proclaiming the message of the little scroll. Now, what is the little scroll? It could be the particular message that the Lord Jesus is giving John for the church, the message of the book of Revelation. I wonder, though, if it is more than that. I'm persuaded it is more than that, that it's referring to Jesus' Word or God's Word in its entirety, the Bible, and the golden thread that is the gospel that runs through the Bible. The little scroll is the message of the gospel. And it's the gospel message that runs through the whole of the Bible and every book of the Bible. The little scroll is the Bible. Why is it so little? Well, did Paul not say that the message of the gospel is foolishness and weakness and will be rejected? Is God's kingdom not the other way around from the world, where the first will be last and the last will be first? When you hold a Bible in your hands, or when you hold out the gospel, does it feel mighty powerful? Or does it feel weak? It does to me. What is John told to do? Verse 8, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Now, there is no way you or I would have the confidence to march up to an angel like this and take something out of its hand unless we were told to by the angel himself. So John went to the angel in his vision and told him to give me the little scroll. 
So John kind of sidles up to this angel in his mind, and he says, okay, give it to me. And the angel said to me, I'm not going to give it to you. You need to take it and eat it. John said, give it to me. The angel said, take it. What the angel is saying to John is that he needs to consciously take the scroll. It is a commitment on the part of John that is looked for. You take it. You take it. It's not just going to fall into your hands, this commission. You've got to take it. You've got to want it. And do what with it? Take the scroll, the Bible, the gospel. And do what with it? Proclaim it? Yes, that comes in verse 11. First, though, he is to eat it. Take, eat, proclaim. Not take, proclaim. Not take the Bible and go and speak its message. Not take the gospel and go and speak it. Take it, consume it, and then speak it. Some of you might recall the Old Testament prophecy of Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesied during the exile, and the message he was told to bring to the people was a hard and a challenging message. Ezekiel, at that point in his ministry, fearful as he was, had a vision. And he had a vision of a little scroll. And he was told to eat that scroll and then to speak its message. John is told to eat it, to take the message of the gospel to his heart, to own it, to embrace it, to live and to breathe it, to let it affect every fiber of his being that he is so convicted by it and so convinced of it that he is compelled to speak it out, however difficult that is. You see, the message John has to proclaim, the message of the book of Revelation, the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel is not an easy message, which is why the angel says to him, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. The gospel is a wonderful message but it's a very challenging message. The consequences of rejecting the gospel are awful and eternal. And that's what we have to say. And wonderful as that message is, when God opens your eyes to see, to speak that message into a world that is put God off his throne and us onto that throne is dissonant at best. And the person who is called to proclaim the message needs to realize there is cost. They need to feed on God's word. They need to live and breathe and meditate on it. And as they do so, they will realize there is a cost to bear in its proclamation. 
or a church that is committed to the biblical gospel and to proclaiming that gospel will experience cost and difficulty and opposition. Supernatural opposition manifests in all sorts of ways. John needs to consume the scroll because he needs to know about the cost. It is only when we really know the Word of God and are saturated in it, convicted by it and convinced of it, that we realize it will bring bitterness. If we do not know that, we will be all over the place when the cost comes, or even, heaven forbid, change the message, because it's easier. As we transition out of lockdown, my big concern, and others will share this with me, is not the transition of our church family back to meeting in person. That will take time as different people work through the challenging times in which we live. My big anxiety and fear is the supernatural opposition that is being directed at the church in this country to push it down, to press it back. For the first time in hundreds of years, churches the length and breadth of Scotland have been shut. And churches and Christians need to realize that the devil will do all that he possibly can to keep them down, to disunite them. And to some, and I speak often to them, it is the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's just one thing too many. Now, when you are deeply saturated in the Word of God, you realize that it brings bitterness. I think personally, I have found the last six months as hard as any six months, and there have been some hard six months in the past. Sometimes I think I, I can't go on with it. And yet, almost in the same instant, I think, I can't do anything else. I love it. It's the paradoxes of the gospel. For when you consume and are consumed by the gospel and the word of God, you realize the cost. You're made to face it. But as you taste the bitterness, you find yourself often even at the same time, tasting the sweetness of the gospel. And that wonderful truth that is only when we eat and live and breathe the gospel, when we feed on the Word of God, meditate on it, and are saturated in it, that we taste the sweetness of it. If there is indeed bitterness and cost we need that sweet, sweet taste and savor of Jesus, that love for him and the gospel. We need 
to taste the sweetness of Jesus and the gospel in order to go on proclaiming it when we often taste the bitterness that comes with it. And is it not also true that when you taste bitterness, the sweetness is all the sweeter? wonder if that's why letters like Ephesians and Philippians, you know, Ephesians has all sorts of tough stuff in it for the church and its witness. But Paul breaks out into these marvelous prayers for the church. I pray that you will be granted, strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you may be rooted and grounded in love, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What is he praying for? He's praying for us to realize and appreciate when we dwell on the Word of God that it's like honey, sweet to our lips and to our souls. Or Paul in, in Philippians, Philippians, a letter written from Paul in prison to a church under pressure. Halfway through the letter, Paul writes this, I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, feeding on his words, feeding on his gospel. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness from God, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why we study the Bible all the time. We don't study it for its own sake. We study it for sweetness. We study it to come close to Jesus. And we study it to be made aware of the costs. So what did John do, verse 10? He took, he took it there he is on Patmos in exile, feeling the bitterness. He took it. He took it. And what happened when he took the little scroll from the hand of the angel? He took it. He, he was kind of recommissioned, regalvanized. He took it, and his first taste is sweetness. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, now, John, it's time. You must again prophesy about or too many peoples and nations and languages and kings. He took it. He ate it. He spoke it. He took it, a clear and emphatic decision. He ate it. He consumed it, tasting its bitterness and its sweetness. And then he spoke it. He proclaimed the message. I wonder if over the years, again and again and again, I stood up here and said to myself and to all of us, this is the gospel. Go and speak it. And we miss out the bit in the middle. Eat it. Consume it. 
Spend time with Jesus in his word. Spend time with the gospel. Really, really plummets depths. And then go and speak it. Now, might this be a call on someone's heart as they listen tonight to be a minister of the gospel or a missionary to give your life to Christian service? It is not an easy time to be called, at least in this part of the world. There is an apathy and an antagonism to the gospel. You might not see fruit in your lifetime. You might. Will you take the scroll? That stops you being cajoled into taking it. It stops somebody like me leaning on you and says, I think you should do that. It's got to be a call of God, and you've got to take it. You'll not be given it. You've got to take it. Will you take the message of the gospel in this time, in this generation, into this nation or another nation of the earth? Will you take Jesus' word if you are willing to go and proclaim it? but first consume it so that it consumes you and as you consume it come to terms with its bitterness and its sweetness. You feel weak? Yes. The message feels weak. It's a little scroll but on your side is a mighty angel An archangel, Michael or Gabriel, one of these mighty angels of God, an angel whose appearance points you to a mightier Christ, a Christ who reigns at God's side, a Christ who will return, a Christ who is coming soon. That's what's at your back. Time is short. There are more people that God will bring into his kingdom. Is he calling you to take the message of the gospel to them? It is a dangerous calling, but if God is calling you, it is irresistible. What does that mean? It means you think, I cannot do it, and at the same time, you think, I can do nothing else. To those who are already ministers and missionaries, do not lose heart. Be of courage. Take and eat the word, the gospel. Consume it and let it consume you again, that you might proclaim it. And you may turn to the word of God and meditate on it with bitterness as you experience. But take God's word here in Revelation to heart and consume it and taste the sweetness of the gospel. But a calling surely to every church and to every Christian.
to proclaim the message of the gospel. These are not easy times to stand up for Jesus, to hold fast to the message of the gospel. Do we really know the gospel? Have we eaten it to its fill and to our fill? Is it not a good thing that as a church, all of us in our small groups are going to spend a year feeding on a portion of Scripture, Paul's letter to the Romans, which will make us proud of that gospel, which will make us understand its depth, its width, its height, the bitterness that comes from proclaiming it. And we'll get in due course to a chapter like Romans 8, and we will taste the sweetness because we have tasted the bitterness. Maybe God needs this year with us off the back of all that has happened to feed on his word. And with every week in Revelation, we are reminded that the time is short. Remember the angel who held up his hand and said, enough is enough. If you have not yet turned to Jesus for your salvation, do so now. There was a man Jesus met who said, not today, but tomorrow. But for that man, tomorrow never came, because that night God took his life. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this encouraging and strong and powerful vision in Revelation. May we as Christians, as churches, take it to our hearts for the times in which we live. And as we taste, as we eat, as we consume the Word and the Gospel, it will make us realistic and we will taste the bitterness and the cost. But oh, to taste the sweetness, the sweet, sweet Jesus and his message and all that he has done for us and all that he will do for those who trust him. And in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.